In my estimation, the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. is hallowed ground. Primary source documents indicate that the original architects of the Washington Mall laid it out in the shape of a cross as a tribute to Jesus Christ. If you go there, your guide will not admit that, I would pretty much guarantee, but there is evidence to the contrary. The Lincoln Memorial is positioned at the very head of that cross. One day I had the privilege to stand on the steps of that memorial looking down the length of the cross, as it were, to the Washington Monument at the nexus of the cross. And thinking about that imagery, I stood there and my heart surged with thanksgiving to God for the profound influence of Jesus Christ upon this nation and upon my life. I then turned and I walked into the memorial itself and my heart continued to soar as I read Lincoln's second inaugural address etched into the wall of the North Enclave. I felt so alive as I read that rich text in which Lincoln expresses his solid belief in the doctrine of divine providence. In God's preserving and governing power over nature and history. And I felt that I was tapping the mind of a soulmate. Here was a man who could not only explain what divine providence was, rare as that is anymore, but here was a man who found in this doctrine sufficient ballast to stand up against his tumultuous times. I was gloriously alive to what Lincoln was saying. Alive to the enormous implications of his convictions to the history of this nation and the world. But while my spirit soared, I overheard the voice of a young boy betraying a case of sheer boredom. He asked his mother, Is this all there is to see? When his mother refused to answer, the kid responded with disgust. I knew it. We walked all this way for nothing. Numerous thoughts went through my mind at that moment, some more gentle than others. This boy stood in the same memorial. He saw it with his eyes. He stood on hallowed ground, but he was unconscious of the wonder that surrounded him. Unconscious. This boy's insensitivity to glory illustrates a far more serious concern that plagues our church. Many others outside of this church, but our focus here today is us. We are prone as God's people to be unconscious of the wonder of our salvation in Jesus Christ. It should concern us when our children hear the glories of Christ week after week in this church and say, is this all there is to see? It should concern us that our teens learn the basic doctrines of Scripture and hear the stories of God's saving grace and conclude we've walked all this way for nothing. It should concern us to see adults who rejoice in their salvation, yet say with their lives, Is this all there is to see? One of the most concerning characteristics of the evangelical church in the West is spiritual boredom. 
It is as if the church in the West contemplates the glories of salvation in Christ and then asks in a voice of acute boredom, is this all there is? Many churches have responded to this crisis by providing entertainment and so-called relevant teaching, which is a code phrase for systematic encouragement of self-infatuation. The mantra today seems to be biblical Christianity bores us, but the church can at least be a wonderful place for fun and good times and self-help. I propose what we need to combat boredom with Christianity is not entertainment and it is not self-help. What we need to combat this boredom is prayer. We need to pray. And we need to get serious about this call to prayer. What we need is nothing less than a work of God in our hearts. And thus we need to humble ourselves before the throne of God and to plead that He would make us alive to His glories in our salvation. I suggest this proposition on the authority of the Apostle Paul, who expresses this very notion in his address to the Ephesian believers in the first chapter of his book. If you'll turn there to Ephesians chapter 1, we learn from Paul in this first chapter of our wonderful salvation in Christ. We've had opportunity to read the first 14 verses together earlier. But we learn as we come to verse 15 of this great chapter that we should pray with unceasing thanks to God for those He has chosen to save. We should pray with unceasing thanks to God for those that He has chosen to save. Verse 15, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Notice that phrase in verse 15, for this reason. It connects to what Paul has said in verses 3 through 14. In these verses, as we've looked at it earlier, Paul considers the wonders of God's saving grace. Believers are uniquely chosen unto salvation by the Father to the praise of God's glorious grace. Verses 3 through 6. Secondly, they are redeemed by the Son to the praise of God's glorious grace, verses 7 through 13a. And thirdly, in this Trinitarian statement, they are sealed by the Spirit of God to the praise of God's glorious grace, verses 13 and 14. This is glory. This is beauty higher than any beauty that we can define. This salvation in Christ. And while imprisoned at Rome for the gospel, Paul receives a report that God was displaying His saving glory in the lives of the Ephesian believers. And Paul rejoices. That report specifically detailed the Ephesians' faith in the Lord Jesus, verse 15, faith in the Lord Jesus, and their love for all the saints. Their faith in the Lord Jesus was the means of their salvation. It is through faith alone in Christ alone that we come to saving grace. And the love for all the saints is the evidence of their salvation. Those who are regenerated to the love of God, whom they have not seen, will always demonstrate that saving grace by loving their brothers and sisters in Christ whom they have seen. The Ephesians were evidencing this kind of love 
They were not joining the persecutors of the Christians. They were not ignoring the Christians. They loved their brothers and sisters in Christ. They had entered the family, and this love was an evidence that they belonged to God. And Paul rejoices that the grace of God has fallen in Ephesus. He's overjoyed with this display of God's saving power. And as a result, verse 16, he says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. I continue to give thanks. His prayers were not spasmodic or seasonal. His prayers were habitual. Edie says he yearned over them as his children in Christ and he bore their names on his heart before the Lord in fervent, repeated, and effectual intercession. Paul's prayer life was directly influenced by his fundamental orientation to the glory of God. And there is perhaps in that point a great weakness in our experience. He was influenced by his fundamental orientation to the glory of God. And that is what informed his prayers. God was displaying his glories in the Ephesian church. And this brought joy to Paul's heart. He stood, as it were, at the memorial to the glory of God's saving grace as he considered these Ephesian believers, and he gave thanks for them. I wonder, as we consider our own prayer life, do you, do I repeatedly give thanks to God for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Does that genuinely well up within us a spirit of thanksgiving that God has saved others? How pathetic and dull we are to grumble against and to criticize our spiritual brothers and sisters while filling up our prayers with self-oriented prayers and petitions. May God open our eyes to see the glories of His saving grace such that our prayers fill with words of thanksgiving to God for those that He has regenerated. So in verses 15 and 16, Paul gives heartfelt thanks to God for displaying His glory in the salvation of the Ephesians. Now at verse 17, Paul will begin to petition God that the Ephesians themselves would see these glories. Think of the kid at the memorial. That they would wake up and realize the wonder of their salvation. He prays and labors in prayer to this end. We should pray with unceasing thanks to God for those He has chosen. But secondly, we should pray that those God has chosen to save will increasingly discern the glories of their own salvation in Christ. Verse 17, Paul continues, I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that He may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. This is the heart of Paul's prayer. We need to make a few corrections here as we look at the translation, but that He may give you the Spirit. You'll notice there a marginal note, if you have the NIV, that it is a Spirit. And I think that is the better translation. A Spirit, small s. That He would give us a Spirit of wisdom and revelation. It is Paul's habitual prayer that God would give them the Spirit, not praying that He would give them the Holy Spirit, as genuine believers in Christ, they have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit permanently. He is praying that God would give them a spirit. What kind of spirit? Paul is praying that God would give to the Ephesians a spirit of wisdom and revelation. In other words, that they would have keen insight into spiritual realities. 
what spiritual realities, we have to say at least verses 3 through 14. This is the context. That they would understand God's saving election. That they would understand the redemption in Jesus Christ. That they would realize the glories of being sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. That they would have a spirit of revelation and insight into these great glories. This is his fervent prayer for them. The outcome would be that they would know God better. The Greek reading would be a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the sphere of a full knowledge of God. That realizing His salvation, understanding His salvation would lead us to know God. And it says to us in our own prayer lives that we should long for one another to have this keen sense of who God is and what His purposes are for us in Christ. We have such desires for ourselves, I trust, by the grace of God. But look around. Do we have such desires for one another? Do we have a longing that is so deep for the glory of God that we pray for one another to receive a sense, a spirit of wisdom in the revelation that is Jesus Christ? How do we pray for one another? In verses 18 and 19, Paul will now break down this petition into three elements. His basic petition is here in verse 17, that we would get the point, that we would see the glory. But now he's going to break that down into three different elements. What does it mean to have insight into the full knowledge of God? I don't think that Paul is being exhaustive here by any means, but he does give us three branches of knowledge. What does it mean to have an insight into the glories of our salvation? Before... Paul expresses these three elements. He inserts a qualifying phrase there in verse 18 where he says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope for which he has called you. But let's look at the first part of that phrase. I pray also is actually added here in the NIV to help us get the understanding, but it, it may be a bit confusing. It should perhaps just read, having been enlightened in the eyes of your heart. In other words, their spiritual eyes had already been enlightened at conversion. Paul now describes three aspects of the knowledge of God that he longs for the Ephesians to realize. Verse 18, having been enlightened, having come to saving faith, I pray in order that you may know the hope for which he has called you. The hope for which he has called you. To know what is this hope of their calling. The word hope, as we know, in daily conversation is usually used of doubtful potential, something we wish will happen. The New Testament uses the word in the sense of the assurance of an unrealized promise. This hope, this hope, this desire for this unrealized promise is a hope in our calling. This assurance of hope springs from the calling of God. He has placed His effectual call upon our lives. Again, this isn't a call that's just an invitation. Will you please consider coming? Not that kind of calling. This is a calling that raises the dead. The calling of God that says, respond to my saving grace, and it lifts the dead to life. This calling has a hope attached to it. A hope for the future, an assurance of what will come, of the destined end of our salvation. And I wonder how much would change in our perspective if we would truly realize the end for which Christ has saved us. 
how this would blow away depression and discouragement, how this would blow away selfishness to know what's coming ahead, to set our hope and our focus on what God has promised in our salvation. If He has called you, if you have awoken from the dead and come to saving faith, then there is a hope for you. There is a future for you. It awaits you in heaven. And we need to wake up to the realities of this great hope. The second element of divine insight is marked off by a second and a third what in the original language. What is the hope of our calling? And what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? There is the second element. The riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. In the previous phrase, we are assured of the destiny of our calling. Here, we are to understand that this destiny is one of rich and glorious inheritance. Big deal if you're going to heaven, if it's no big deal. If you get there and it's just a perpetuation of this life or something worse. But we need to understand this hope and the calling that we have, this future that is assured for us in our salvation, promises to us this wonderful future this great inheritance in Christ, the riches of the glory to be enjoyed in this inheritance are intended for God's people. And again, how dramatically our lives would be changed and are changed when we fully appreciate that Jesus Christ is preparing a future for His people in heaven, a future that we will inherit with Jesus Christ. It's a future of glory. And in verse 19, the third phrase, breaking down this insight, this knowledge, and His incomparably great power for us who believe. There's the future hope. It is an inheritance of glory. But I want you to also see that in our salvation, I pray for the Ephesian believers, says Paul, there is a great presence of divine power in the life of the believer. I pray that you'd see that, he says. The incomparably great power for us who believe. God chose believers from eternity past, verse 4. He predestined us according to His eternal plan, verse 11. He sealed us with His Holy Spirit, verse 13. And here He assures us that His power is operative for us, not just in heaven, but right now. The power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead and the power that it took for God to raise your dead spirit to spiritual life is a power that is present in your heart and life now. I think if we would really grasp this truth, if we'd really wake up to it, no harm that others have done to us, no temptation that torments you, no malady that besets you, no demon that influences you could ever withstand the power of God which is ours as His children and we would know it. In His hand we are invincible. Not in our own power, not in our own strength. We cannot do whatever we set our mind to do. The foolish wisdom of our world that keeps telling us this. But in the hand of Jesus Christ, we are invincible. This self-help message of you can be anything that you want to be, it takes the focus away from our God and it focuses on us and our inner worth and our inner strength. I have no inner worth and I have no inner strength that I need to think about or care about. I have the God of the universe and He holds me in the palm of His hand. That's all I need. 
An invincible power surrounds us and pervades our lives as believers. We need to wake up to it. We stand in it. It surrounds us. It upholds us. We're asleep to it. If we would only see it, if we would only grasp it, our God is omnipotent, and that omnipotence operates in your behalf, believer. How powerful is the power of God? How powerful is it? Verses 19 and following focus on that power and give us just a glimpse into its glorious splendor in Christ. I want you to see, I pray to God that you will see, verse 19, the incomparably great power for us who believe. Now let's talk about that power just for a bit. It's just like he just trips all over himself and can't hold himself back to begin to describe this power. It is the middle of verse 19. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms. That's the power I'm talking about. The kind of power God exerts in behalf of the believer is the kind of power that defeated death. What enemy do you have that is greater than death? It's an enemy. It's a powerful enemy. It is a cruel enemy. It is a harsh enemy. God beat it. And it is that power that is evidenced in our lives as His people. In Christ's strength, we can overcome any temptation. We can love any person. We can fulfill any duty. We can face any trial with hope. We can suffer any tragedy and walk in joy because of the operation of God's power in our lives. It's not some sort of force field that miraculously protects us from the pain. It's a kind of power that operates in the pain and moves us increasingly to see the glory of God and to be transformed until we meet Him face to face. That's the kind of power of which He speaks. And Paul just continues to Move forward, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That is, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. We are so often led to believe that one individual can grasp this power and take it away from us by harming us or wronging us. We can be so easily led to believe that one wrong circumstance can take away the power of God. Paul says here, you must understand about this power. It comes from the throne of Jesus Christ. All things are under His feet. Nothing can defeat it. Nothing can take it away. Seated at the right hand in the heavenly realms, verse 20, verse 22, God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church. As a past tense here, God has placed all things under His feet. There will be a fuller realization of this reign. But God has placed all things under the feet of Jesus and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church. That is, the church's head is head over all things. And He has head over all things in part for our sake. An amazing thought. The power and authority of Almighty God resides in His church. 
Verse 23 continues, which is His body. The church is His body. The fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. This is a difficult phrase in the Greek, who fills everything in every way, or more literally, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. The idea, the best I can do, is it seems to be that the church is the body of Christ, and Christ is the fullness of the Father, and the Father fills all things in the universe as omnipresent spirit. The church is the body of Christ, and the Christ is the fullness of the Father, and the Father fills all things. At any rate, it is clear that Jesus is Lord over death and over every authority and title in the universe. So line them up. Line up every worldly leader, every demonic power, every glorious angel of heaven before human beings fall in fear. Line up every ruler and authority and power in heaven and on earth and know this, they are all under the feet of Jesus Christ. He rules supreme over them in the universe. Jesus has all dominion and all power and all authority. And here's the wonder of it. That authority is flowing toward His people. It is present in your life. This power, this greatness of God, this saving majesty pervades your life as a Christian. We need to wake up, don't we? We need to wake up and to see where we stand. How tragic it is to be dull and insensitive to these glorious realities of our salvation. I think again of that young boy at the Lincoln Memorial who was so clueless. And it serves as an illustration of the danger that we have as God's people. Because a far greater tragedy than being clueless to some aspect of American history is the danger of standing at the cross of Jesus Christ and feeling nothing. And saying... Is this all there is to see? If you have never been captivated, and I mean never have been captivated by the wonder of God's saving grace, let me say to you, it is not because Jesus is not wonderful. I've talked to many people over the years who speak with me basically as I'm some sort of wacko that sees something that's not really there. They don't see the glory of Jesus. They don't see the greatness of this salvation. And their conclusion is it's not there. It's there. There's two things that are possible. It's not there, and so you don't see it. Or it is there, and you can't see it. I want to be one voice, a minority voice in this world, who tells you it's there. If you've never seen the glory of Christ, you've never been thrilled with His saving grace, you do not understand any sense of why anyone is encouraged by His power, you're blind. You're spiritually blind. And that is not something that you can change on your own. Jesus must reveal the Father to you. But having claimed sovereign right to reveal the Father to whom He chooses... Jesus follows in Matthew chapter 11 with the open-armed invitation, 
Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he really will. He will give you the rest that opens your eyes to see the realities of salvation in Christ. He delights to replace anguish, spiritual blindness with the eternal rest of eyes that are wide open to His glories. For those of us who have tasted this glory, those of us who know the joy of salvation in Christ and realize that Jesus is alive and that He reigns and that His saving grace has descended upon our own lives, believer, have you grown dull to the wonders of God's saving grace? One of the great frustrations of my life is I'm not more awake to it. I know that it's there and I'm alive to it in many respects. I want to be more alive to it, to sense it, to realize it, to understand it, to perceive it, to feel it. To know that that hope that is there in the future is real. To know that it is a glorious inheritance that awaits to know that the power of God and His saving grace resides in my life and will carry me forward through eternity where I will come to know Him more and more and more throughout all eternity. If we have grown dull and insensitive to these great glories, may God rebuke us and may we repent and may we seek renewal. The thing that should concern us most as we come to church, as we face the Lord on our own in our private individual lives, is not how everybody's lining up with our will, not whether we're getting our way, not whether we have ease of circumstance. What should enamor us and hold our attention is the glory of the salvation in Jesus Christ. And let that influence what goes on in your life. And let that influence how you relate to other people. Such that like Paul, we constantly give thanks that God's saving grace is displayed in the lives of His people. Such that we pray fervently for one another that we would see this glory. A response to this message. If you do not know Christ as your Savior and have not seen the glory in His face, all I can do as a human being is call you to come to Him, to seek Him. For those of us who know Him as Savior, I call you today to prayer. In your mind's eye, look around this auditorium and consider your brothers and sisters in Christ and realize that we need to go to work for one another and pray that God would break through the gloom and the dullness and the insensitivity and awaken us more and more to the glories of His saving grace. Will you pray with me as we pray for one another to this end? Let's bow. Our Father God, words fail us to understand what we have seen in this great text of Scripture. And we have a sense, God, of how little we see and how dull we are. And as is appropriate here, I pray, God, that Your people would offer to You here prayers of repentance. I trust, dear God, I believe, I hope that there are people here now that are praying and are pouring out their heart and their soul and saying, God, help me to see. Help me to taste the goodness of the Lord and to find it sweet again. God, I pray that you'll hear that prayer 
and hear that cry. And as we lift prayers for one another, I plead, dear Father, that you'd answer our prayers, that we would be taken not with self, but that we would be taken with your glories. And allow that to change the way that we see all of life. Please answer this cry and help us to continue to pray for one another that we would see it. If there would be one or others that you are drawing to saving faith today, I pray that you'll complete that work by your grace even here this afternoon. That you will bring it about by your mercies. We pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen.